Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are ready to study God's word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your grace is beyond anything that we can uh, measure, anything that we can plumb, anything that we can fully comprehend. And, Father, your grace is always coupled with your love and your justice and your righteousness. And these components of your character always work towards man. And in grace you have postponed judgment. You have postponed uh, bringing evil to its final uh judgment and condemnation in human history for the purpose that uh, many will be saved. And, Father, at this time of year, as we focus on Christmas as a time of remembering the birth of our Lord, we pray that we might not be distracted by all of the different things that go on in the holidays, but that we might keep our focus on your grace and that as we deal with uh, people, everyone from shop clerks to uh, relatives to neighbors and co-workers that we are mindful of our opportunity to exemplify your grace in our lives and that the things that we say and the things that we do would manifest our understanding of your grace and your goodness and that we might be an effective testimony and get the opportunity to explain the gospel to those who are positive and those who are ready to respond. And, Father, as we study your word tonight, may we become even more conscious of the fact that there really is a judgment coming and that when your wrath is fully revealed, that it is a terrible thing to witness. And we pray that as we study in Revelation chapter 18 and on into 19, that we will be mindful of the fact that we have been redeemed and that this kind of judgment is not ours, for we look forward to a a wonderful and glorious time with you in the kingdom and throughout eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation 18 focuses on the final fulfillment of the judgments on Babylon. Chapter 17 focused more on the Babylon in terms of the religious uh, network of ideas that come out from Babylon as the final form of the kingdom of man. And chapter 18 focuses more on the economic system. I made the point last time that we need to keep in mind that there is this connection between the economics, which has to do with all 
manners of economics, not just economic theory in terms of socialism or Marxism or capitalism or various other shades of economic theory, but economic activity in terms of man's basic orientation to labor and the planet. That's the root of economics is the production that comes from labor and how that production is used in various ways within the social structure of the human race. And I think what this points out as we think about the connection between chapters 17 and 18 is you, it shows once again that you can't distinguish different areas of, of human activity from religious orientation from how a person or a society or culture views God, that that relationship to God affects their views on law, on politics, on economics, on labor, on the value and use of money, and all of these factors. And so we see that the judgment from God first falls on the religious orientation, which is the center the, the, the root of everything else, and then upon the economics, because once the economics are judged, everything else just collapses. The world is going to go into truly the greatest depression, the greatest economic collapse. Uh, Dow Jones hits zero, uh, full story at 11. This will come up on the last day of the tribulation. There's just going to be be nothing, nothing left as we see in this particular, uh, this particular chapter. And so when you look at chapter 18, I pointed out last time, there's basically three divisions in the chapter. The first three verses give us a, uh, orientation or basic preview to the rest of the chapter and then details are developed, uh, beginning in verse four. And the first part, God sends, uh, another strong angel who announces the final doom of Babylon, the first three verses. The second part, God the Father announces the final judgment on Babylon from verses 4 down through verse 20. And then in the last section, the last four verses, God sends a second angel to pronounce the judgment on Babylon, and this seals the doom of Babylon. And then there is a response to this that we'll see in heaven at the beginning of chapter 19, which then serves as the prelude to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in triumph, which is then described in in the next chapter. So last time we looked at the first three verses, but it's that third verse that really does give us a summary of the indictment that God is bringing as the judge of the universe, the judge of his creatures, the high court of heaven issues this as a summary indictment against the nations, against all of the rebellious earth dwellers on planet earth. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And I pointed out in that phrase that this is really a, a very picturesque idiom figure of speech, when you, we drink something, as I pointed out on Sunday morning, uh, the last couple of Sunday mornings we've had lessons on eating and drinking, that when we eat or drink, that's receiving something into ourselves, accepting something where when we eat food, it is chewed up, swallowed, 
uh, taken in, metabolized, and becomes part of us. And same, same with drinking, so that the imagery of eating and drinking is a picture of taking something in that becomes uh, very much a part of the person. And so the imagery here of drinking the wine of the wrath of a fornication is a picture of how the, the nations have just uh, fully accepted uh, the, all of the thought systems and the rebelliousness, the spiritual rebelliousness and the, of, the, uh, of the kingdom of man, the kingdom of Babylon. For they have drunk of the wine of the wrath, and the wrath indicates the judgment of God that comes upon uh, the fornication here. That's how it's translated, but that's, that has connotations that are not part of this passage. The Greek word there, porneo, has to do with basic core meaning is infidelity, unfaithfulness to a covenant. It can be sexual unfaithfulness in the context of marriage, but in the context of other things that don't involve physical relationships, it's talking about the uh, infidelity, the unfaithfulness to a covenant or to a promise, and this would be the general creation covenant that God has established with man from the beginning of the human race. And so the kings of the earth represent the rulers, the political systems within the, gen- within the cosmic system on planet earth, and the, their immorality, their unfaithfulness to, to God's covenant, see, going after other gods, another term that is often used, especially in the Old Testament, in the context of spiritual adultery, uh, spiritual adultery is when you worship anything other than God in the place of God. It's being unfaithful to God. And so that brings about God's just judgment eventually. And so the kings of the earth have committed this infidelity, spiritual infidelity with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the power of her luxury. And I pointed out last time, that the word, that's really how the word should be translated there, not the abundance of her luxuries you have in the New King James and some other translations, but the power of her luxury because money equates to power and influence and it, it can serve for some as a, as a, like a drug. It, it just generates more and more of a desire, uh, desire for it. And so as the merchants of the earth have uh, worked to accumulate power and you see the growth of huge corporations and people just accumulating wealth for its own sake, then this is a violation of the, of the basic covenant that God has made with man. One of the key elements in developing a biblical view of labor and a biblical view of economics is that the ultimate owner of the earth is God. Under his sovereignty, God is the one who owns all of the land and all of the production, and that the human race is viewed as a steward who is to faithfully utilize that land. And in the original creation mandate in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, man then is to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field as God's representative. Well, under sin, what happens is that man, because of his 
arrogance and his uh, self-absorbed nature, nature wants to utilize everything that God has created for his own uh, pleasure, his own aggrandizement, his own power, until this is taken to its fullest extent as seen in the kingdom of Babylon at the end time. So this sets up the basic uh basic indictment relating to the nations, that's the people, relating to the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth. There's only one group that's left out of this that comes up later in the chapter, and that that relates to the seamen, those who are involved in commerce related to the the seas, and we'll get to those as we get towards the uh, end of the chapter. So this is sort of a summation of the indictment. Then in verse 4, God, caught, we see a shift in to, to more specifics. In verse 4, shift in more specifics. And uh, John says he heard another voice from heaven. And so this other voice from heaven, uh, I think, could most likely be God's voice, the Father's voice, because we've seen this in the past that God at this time is in the temple and the preparation for the bold judgments. Everyone evacuates the temple. And when we look at chapters, uh, chapter 16 dealing with those uh, bold judgments, there was a voice that came from heaven. This was the voice of God. And I believe this is uh, initially um, what we saw in the first part. What we can see here is a, a voice from God, although... There must be a, you have a problem with that because starting in verse, uh, the latter part of the verse, uh, in verse 5, verse 6, the, it seems to shift to a third person, uh, where verse 5 says, for her sins have reached to heaven and God. See, there's a third person. If God is speaking, then it would be, uh, first person there. So it could very well also be, uh, an angel speaking it's just not clear because it hasn't been uh, hasn't been stated although i think a case can be made for for either one it's either the voice of the father speaking from the temple or he has sent out an angel to speak on his behalf so you have the reference to my people as a first person in verse 4 and then god in a third person sense in verse 5 so it's uh it's a little bit uncertain, but the bottom line is that it is coming from the high court of heaven. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. Now, this is a, an important, I think, verse. has some interesting little implications here because God is addressing Babylon, this is the woman that's been represented as the great harlot back in chapter 17, and this is represented as, as this uh, terrible, uh, wanton uh, system of extravagant uh, materialism and rebelliousness towards God that is represented by this city, Babylon. And yet, even in the midst of that city, there are a number of believers. They're called my people. And I think this really shows something about the grace of God and the 
depravity of man in that you can't get caught up in this kind of a trap like we often find many of us and many believers falling into is when we think of certain people working in a certain kind of job or profession or living a certain lifestyle, we think, how in the world can they be a Christian, be a believer and do that and live like that or act like that or whatever it may be? And that is because as individuals, even though we may be saved, we are not necessarily uh, mature enough in our knowledge of the word to make wise choices. In many cases, you have believers who are so attracted to the world system and so tempted and enticed by the world system that they're never able to really uh, remove themselves from the world system. And this is true even in the tribulation. With all that is going on in the tribulation, with the uh, Antichrist setting up his, having his image set up in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem to be worshipped, with the persecution of those who do not have the mark of the beast, And with all of the things that are going on, nevertheless, there is still a group that has been saved, that has been redeemed, that is living in the midst of sin city Babylon at the end of the tribulation. And so God calls upon them in warning, come out of her, my people, uh, lest you share in her sins. And the basic command here to come out, my people, is in the uh, aorist imperative, which indicates the urgency of the command. It's not something that should take place over a period of time, but something that needs to happen immediately, come out now as a warning just prior to the complete fall of this horrendous judgment that will destroy the city uh, at the end of the tribulation period. So the command in, uh, the command emphasizes this urgency. It's not an invitation, but a demand, a warning, uh, to evacuate now, lest you be caught up, uh, in the judgment. But it's not just about the judgment. It is come out lest you share in her sins. That's the first part. So there is a call to separation not just to remove themselves physically from Babylon so that they don't come under all of the judgments, but there is a command there to to leave so that they don't become influenced and tempted by the all of the enticements of the cosmic system. And so they are called to leave, to remove themselves, to separate from Babylon uh, from the, so they don't share in the sins, number one. And number two, lest they receive the plagues, a term that John often uses uh, in the apocalypse to refer to the judgments that God is pouring out upon the earth. And then verse 5 comes along, and we have, uh, we have an explanation of this. Now, before we go on to verse 5, uh, this verse, the idea of coming out and fleeing and leaving, has a parallel in two key passages that we have looked at in the past related to unfulfilled prophecy and Babylon. In Jeremiah chapter uh, 50, verse 8, there is the cry, Move from the midst of Babylon, go out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be like the rams before the flocks. That has to do with leadership leading out of the uh, out of an area. 
So there's the command there to move from the midst of Babylon. And as I've said before, as we look at these two chapters, Revelation 17 and 18, there's been a lot of debate as to whether or not this is a literal Babylon because it doesn't seem like there's enough uh, economic activity over there on the banks of the Euphrates right now to uh, merit this kind of attention. It's just pretty much uh, dusty ruins over there with a few small Arab villages. And yet we believe, based on these prophecies, that this is truly referring to literal Babylon, not some sort of figurative application of the term to something else. Uh, Jeremiah 51, 6 through 9 also uh, echoes this same command to flee from the midst of Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah 51, 6, flee from the midst of Babylon and everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity. See the parallel. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. That pictures the same kind of thing we're reading here in Revelation 18. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. That idea of payment for sin, payment for crime, is clearly evident in uh, Revelation 18. Verse 7 reads, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. See that same imagery, the nations drinking of the wine of the cup of the wrath, of the uh, wine of the wrath of, of, uh, of God that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. And then verse 89, Babylon has suddenly fallen. Notice the prophecy pictures a sudden collapse, an immediate collapse, something that was not expected, something that is somewhat of a surprise, and that just intensifies uh, the shock. Babylon has fallen suddenly and been destroyed. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her. And let us go everyone to his own country, for her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. Now, there is a wonderful little saying that a man named David L. Cooper was first credited with uh, uh, putting into print, and that is the golden rule of interpretation, which states that when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context indicate clearly otherwise. And this is how we are to approach Scripture, to read it as normal language and not assign some sort of spiritual meaning, allegorical meaning, or, or some sort of symbolic meaning that destroys the literal meaning of the text. And unless there's clear reason within the text to do so. And under this guidance in hermeneutics, that means that Israel always means Israel. And the church always means the church. And that would mean that Babylon would always mean Babylon. So that when we read of Babylon falling, this is talking about the actual city on the Euphrates, and not Rome. Now, verse 5 comes along. Verse 5 gives us a further explanation. A further explanation, and this is indicated in the Greek by the initial word that's translated for, which is a little bit different in the English, 
the Greek word is uh, hati, which usually indicates cause. And it, you get a greater sense of this when you read it as because her sins have reached to heaven. This is what now has, it seems, moved God in his justice to bring judgment upon Babylon. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now, this first phrase that we read here, actually we have a couple of uh, idioms in this, in this particular verse. Uh, neither one of these statements are understood in a literal sense. Now, I just got through making a point that we understand words and phrases in their normal use, and part of normal use of literal use of language is, is figurative speech. We use idioms all the time, but the idioms have a, a literal meaning. If you tell somebody that they are to go jump in the lake, uh, you don't literally mean for them to jump in the lake, but that phrase, that idiom, does have a literal meaning that they are just to uh, remove themselves from your presence or to forget about something or something of that nature. So we use idioms all of the time to that are non-literal phrases, but they have a literal meaning assigned to them. It's not guesswork. It's just part of the normal use and structure uh, structure of language. And we have this with both of these phrases. The first one is, sins have reached to heaven. Now, this is really a, a rather interesting phrase. Uh, it's, doesn't, it really isn't well translated in the King James that her sins reached to heaven. But you can, even, in, in, even though that's not an accurate translation, we can still catch a sense of what that means, not that her sins literally uh, reached all the way to heaven, but the idea is that now they have become so egregious, they have been so extreme that... Uh, God must act. So we get a sense, even in the English, of the, uh, of the size, the dimensions, the increase of the sinfulness of Babylon so that now finally something has to be done. The word that's translated reached to heaven is a Greek word, kolao, K-O-L-L-A-O, kolao, which means to join, to cleave, uh, to cleave to or to stick to something. That's the same word that is used to translate dabak from Genesis chapter 2, that a uh, man and woman are to leave father and mother and cleave to one another. That's that same word. It means to uh, come together, to join together, to cleave to. It's used in Luke 10:11 to refer to the dust that clings to the inside of a cup. And so it has the idea of something uh, joining, uh, joining together. And so if we were to translate it with this sense of meaning, we would say that Babylon's sins cling to her unto heaven. But the word was used also in an idiomatic sense, which conveyed the idea of, of things being brought together and sort of piled up on top of each other. 
that uh, sins would cling to each other. They would attach themselves to each other, just as in the building of a building, you would put pile up one brick upon another and attach one brick to another by means of mortar until you have constructed a building. So there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek humor going on with the use of this word because it it brings to mind the building of the Tower of Babel, piling one one brick upon another to try to reach heaven. And that is the idea here, why it's stated in this particular way, that now her sins have been, have piled up so much that they have uh, been brought to the attention of God. Of course, that again is somewhat of a, of a figure of speech because God is omniscient and he knows everything is knowable. He hasn't forgotten anything. He doesn't need to have anything brought to his attention as if somehow he forgot about it. He was just too busy. I know that many times when we go through uh, circumstances in life, you go through a lot of adversity, long-term difficulty, that people often think that God's a little bit too occupied with the war in Iraq or Afghanistan or trying to deal with uh, political situations of the Middle East to really pay attention to their problems. But that is because people have, and we've all done that, we have, tend to have too small of a view of God. God never forgets anything. Uh, he never overlooks anything. He doesn't need to be reminded of anything. That is uh, just a very anthropocentric or man-centered way of looking at God. What we have in 18.5, though, is this kind of idiom that is often used to show that that after a pause, after a time when it doesn't seem as if God is engaged in solving a problem, now God is engaged and God is paying attention uh, to uh, to something. This is an anthropopathism, which is uh, defined as language of accommodation. It's not saying things as they actually are, as much as saying them in a way that our finite minds can draw a parallel between how God does something and how we see things happening within our experience so that we can come to have some sort of an understanding of God's plans or policies or procedures. So language, an anthropopathism is language of accommodation that ascribes to God human passions, emotions, thoughts, and attitudes, which he does not actually possess uh, to reveal and explain himself or divine policy or acts or decisions to the finite mind of man. Examples would include grief, or remembering. Several times, Genesis 8-1, God uh, remembered Noah. Genesis 19-29, God remembered his promise to Abraham. Or repentance, where God is said that God changed his mind. Actually, God doesn't change his mind, but there, for, to, from our perspective, that's what it appears to be. The idea of vengeance, which really is misunderstood by a lot of people. In English, the word vengeance often has a sense of personal, carrying out a personal vendetta, whereas the uh, original word in the Hebrew has more of the idea of bringing about justice, but only God can do that because he is the ultimate judge of the universe. A hatred, uh, often used as a figure of speech in Scripture for simply God's rejection of something. Uh, Anger. Or jealousy. So these are anthropopathisms, and re, when you say God remembered uh, this 
situation in uh, in Babylon. God has remembered her iniquities. What this is doing is saying that God now, after a lengthy pause in his uh, involvement, direct involvement with Babylon, he has allowed those in Babylon to uh, have unrestrained rebellion against him. Now he is finally bringing that to judgment, and he is going to execute his punishment. And we see this in other verses of Scripture. For example, Revelation 16:19, just three chapters back, uh, we read, Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. This was a summary look forward, an anticipation of the judgment of Babylon. The cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God. Notice there it's in the passive voice. Uh, God is the one who remembered. So great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And the word that is used here now in, back up a little bit, for iniquities, that God has remembered her iniquities, is the Greek word adikemata, adikemata, A-D-I-K-E-M-A-T-A. Uh, didn't put that up on. It's from dike, which means righteousness, and the negative alpha prefix means uh, without righteousness. And it was a word that was often used to refer to indictable offenses or crimes. And so once again, we see the heavy emphasis on uh, the legal structure here of the judicial uh, system of God, that they are being, going to be judged because of their uh, indictable offenses against God. So judgment will come. Now we move on to another interesting section in verses 6 through 9. Here there is an, uh, or 6 through 8 rather. Here there is an address to someone to do something. Now who is being addressed here? Uh, the scripture says, the one who is speaking says, render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her in the measure that she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow for she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. So obviously from the last sentence we see that the theme of divine justice and judgment continues. But who's being addressed here? Who is being commanded to render to her just as she rendered to you? Well, there's a couple of options. One option would be the Antichrist and his armies. Remember, the context here is at the very end of the tribulation, as the nations are being gathered together at Armageddon. So one option would be that God is addressing the Antichrist and his armies, and another option would be the enemies that are coming against the Antichrist. Someone is going to be wiping out uh, Babylon. So is it going to be either the, the Antichrist and his armies, or is it going to be the enemies coming against uh, the Antichrist? 
Now, the best option seems to be it is the Antichrist and his allies, the Ten Kings, who bring this destruction upon Babylon. And this is based on understanding of Revelation 17, 16, and 17. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. Who's the harlot? That is Babylon sitting on the the waters, one picture sitting on the beast, the other picture. Uh, These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked. So it's the ten horns representing those ten kings who are just going to destroy the, the woman Babylon. They will make her desolate naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Why? Explanation, verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are, for, are fulfilled. So here we see how God uses human agents to bring about his judgment on mankind. One of the greatest examples of this in the Old Testament was when God used Babylon in the ancient world to bring judgment and divine discipline upon the southern kingdom of Israel. And the Babylonians were some of the fiercest uh, fighters in the ancient world. They weren't nearly as bad as the Assyrians, but they were bad enough. And they were wicked and they were uh, polytheists and they were pagans and the self-righteous Jews looked down upon the uh, upon the Babylonians with disdain. And... Uh, and this is the context of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, the prophet, is praying to God. He's looking out on the apostate scene of, of Jerusalem and Judea and Judah, the southern kingdom. And he's praying to God, and he says, God, uh, you need to judge these people. Look at their abominations. Look at their idolatry. Look at their rebellion and the sins. And God's answer in the first chapter is, well, I have judgment coming, and it's in the Babylonians, and I'm bringing the Babylonians in to bring judgment on uh, on Judah and to destroy them. And Habakkuk's response is, what, Lord? Those evil people, how can you judge us? But th- they're worse than we are. And God's response is that because he is the sovereign God, he can dispose of people in the way he thinks best. And if he wants to use uh, the evil uh, pagan Babylonians to bring judgment upon uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, then that is his right and privilege as as God, but that he will also bring judgment and justice to uh, to Babylon. And so that's the same kind of thing that we see here, is that God uses these, these ten kings to bring judgment against uh, Babylon the Great and to destroy uh, Babylon the Great. Now, when this verse begins in verse 6, it begins with the word render. Render to her just as she has rendered to you. And the word that is used in both cases is, is, is this Greek word I have up on the screen, apodidomi. Didomi is the basic Greek word for giving. And apa is a preposition that intensifies uh, the meaning. And, it me- and so this word apodidomi means to uh, give away, to give up, to give back, to sell. In some cases, to give back that which is due to or to make recompense for something. And that's sort of the idea here is to 
give payment back to on what is due to render or to repay her just as she uh, paid or gave to you would be the idea that uh, that we see in verse six and repay her double according to her works now there is something uh, interesting that happens in this in this particular verse of uh, verse uh, verse six render to her just as she rendered to you. Notice the comparison. This is a key principle that comes out of the, out of the Mosaic law that is embedded within divine judge, ju- justice, and that is that the penalty fits the crime. And that was picked up in uh, the Protestant Reformation and became a part of English common law and a part of American uh, jurisprudence as well. But the source comes out of the scripture is that payment, punishment, should should fit the crime. You do not punish to an, an extreme degree just because some crime or infraction occurred. As parents, you don't you have to be careful not to over punish for disobedience. The penalty needs to fit uh, the act of disobedience. And so this is seen within the context of these these verses. Render to her just as she rendered to you, repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she had is mixed, mix double for her. Well, why is it double? It's double because it's punishment. It is repayment. It is not an egregious uh, extreme repayment. When you look at the Mosaic Law, many times that if there was uh, theft or something else, the payment would be double or triple or five times as much. That's part of the the act of punishment. And so the penalty fits the crime. Now, think about that just a minute. When the punishment is this massive destruction of Babylon, just think how horrible the act of sin and idolatry and rebellion must truly be. When we think about the end game punishment for all unbelievers as eternity in the lake of fire, we have to understand that if God is truly just and God is truly a God of love as well, then, and if God is consistent with his revelation that the penalty must fit the crime, that the penalty that it seems to us to be so harsh, I mean, eternity is a long time to be in horrible pain, that if God is consistent, then that must tell us that the act, the crime, the sin of rebellion against God must indeed be so horrible and so... uh, terrible in its consequences, so destructive that perhaps we need to rethink our whole concept of sin and have a a much more uh, robust idea of what uh, sin and evil really is and the damaging consequences that it brings into our lives uh, personally, into our into the lives of those around us who are affected uh, by our own sin and those who also are, become affected by that in a secondary or tertiary way. And we think about Adam, Adam's little bitty sin that doesn't seem to be such a bad thing just to eat a piece of fruit, is was so bad in what it did to the fabric of the universe and reality 
that it, it, it reverberated through everything. It changed the physical structure of the universe. From that point on, you have the second law of thermodynamics where everything runs down uh, and moves to a state of disorder or entropy. From that point on, you have thorns and thistles uh, springing up from the ground. You have a change in biological structure in various animals and, and violence and uh, war and famine and all of these things come into the experience of mankind all because of that one little decision. So this causes us to reflect upon that punishment of eternal condemnation as maybe not being uh, quite so out of order after all. It is indeed a crime, I mean a punishment that does indeed fit uh, fit the crime. Now when we look at verse 7, We read that the indictment goes on or the description of punishment goes on. Therefore, verse 7, in the, uh, rather, in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously. Notice that initial phrase, in the measure. So according to the degree that she did something, the punishment fits the crime. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, In the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. The crime or the punishment fits the crime. And pay attention to this. In the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. See, at the very core of her motivation is the idea that she is trying to avoid pain, suffering, and punishment. We don't want to have bad things happen to good people, so we have to do whatever we can to protect ourselves. Doesn't that have sort of a ring of familiarity? Every now and then I know you get these kind of emails, that too, that talk about what life was like back when we were growing up in the 40s or the or the 50s or the 60s when you didn't have OSHA and you didn't have all of these uh, uh, what seem to many of us to be excessive uh, mandates for safety, and somehow as kids we all we all managed to grow up. We might have knocked out a tooth or two, or broken an arm or an ankle, but we did things on our bicycles that, and we never wore helmets, and we rode horses without wearing uh, safety helmets and safety goggles and. And so many different, we, you know, I don't think I put a seatbelt on for years, and we managed to survive. And I'm not saying that, that these are, are bad things to do. I mean, it's, it's good to take precaution, reasonable precautions, and to be reasonably safe and secure. But there is a, a there, there's something going on behind all of this. And what this reflects is that we live in a culture where people are scared to death of, of death. They are fearful of dying, and they don't have a biblical orientation to suffering, and they don't have a biblical understanding of, of death, and so they are, at the very core of their being, very much afraid, so they try to protect themselves in every way from letting anything possibly happen that could cause death, because we really don't know what's on the other side. And it's, it, it really is an 
in Congress with many other beliefs that go on in our culture, but I think that's what it's ultimately driven by. Now, we're going to see this develop in, a, in an extreme way, I think, based on this verse during the, the tribulation period, that this whole culture is wrapped up in trying to avoid seeing sorrow, really coming to grips with with suffering and grief in life. If you're old enough, you might remember a time, especially if you're old enough and you grew up more in a rural environment, you might remember a time when uh, when there was a birth that it occurred in... In, in the parents' bedroom, in the parents' bed. If there was a death, then the body was placed in a coffin and was uh, put out on for viewing in the parlor. And that when, uh, I know that th- this would have been true of the generation that ended about the time of World War II, 1940s to 50s, that uh, like my grandparents, that they would have grown up in a time like that where life, the coming into life, and death, the exit from life, were very much a part of everyone's experience. That uh, the kids, if you grew up on a farm, that you'd have to get up in the morning and carry out your morning chores and uh, get the eggs and uh, take care of the chickens and maybe a few other livestock uh, animals around the farm. And if... uh, uh, chicken was on the menu for dinner, that uh, the mother would go out and get the chicken and wring its neck and or cut the neck off, and the chicken would run around like a chicken with its head cut off and around the farmyard. And some of you are smiling. You, you might have some of those memories. But we don't have those memories if you've grown up in a sanitized urban culture in 21st century America because... You know, we often laugh about the person who's, you know, wants everyone to be kind to animals, but they go pick up the, the, uh, they, they're against hunting. So you ought to get your meat like everybody else. Go down to the store and get it. Don't be cruel to animals. Why are you killing something to eat it? Uh, we, we, they, they, they're divorced from the realities of life and death and all of those cycles that are normative and natural and suffering and hardship are part of that living in the devil's world. So this depicts an, an extremely arrogant, self-absorbed attitude that the culture uh, that is depicted by in Babylon is a culture that seeks to psychologically wipe out the effects of the fall, which are which is what brings sorrow. There's only one thing that's going to wipe out sorrow, and that is when we're face-to-face with the Lord, absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, in eternity, in the millennial kingdom, for those who are resurrected, where there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain for the old things that passed away. Only God, because of the redemption of the cross, can produce a life and a culture where there is no sorrow and no grief and no pain. And so this shows again that the orientation of the Babylonian culture is an orientation towards uh, self-sufficiency apart from God and solving all of man's problems uh, completely apart from God. So in verse 8, a the Resulting judgments are announced. Therefore, because of this self-absorbed arrogance, because of her self-deification, 
Therefore, her plagues will come in in one day. She's trying to avoid sorrow, so what is she going to get? Three plagues, death, mourning, and famine. She's going to get sorrow uh, to the nth degree as God brings judgment upon, upon Babylon, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong or mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Now, as we look at this particular uh, verse here in verse 8, uh, we, first thing we run into is this phrase that her plagues will come in in one day. This is uh, not to be taken in an extremely literal sense that this is going to all happen within a 24-hour period, but the phrase one day indicates that it is uh, it, it's a short time. It will be within, it will be shorter than a 24-hour period. It's not like one day equals it's going to take 24 hours to do it. It is going to all take place within a very short time. What we have in this chapter is in verse 10, we have the phrase, the idiom in one day. Uh, I mean, verse 8, one day. In verse 10, it's one hour. And in verse 17, uh, also uh one hour, and 19, one hour. So it's talking about the immediacy, the suddenness. It's completely unexpected. This is going to uh, have the surprise shock effect that uh, probably that first atomic bomb had uh, when it fell on Hiroshima. The city is going to be wiped out in less than an hour, Just and she'll be burned with fire, and that may be... Uh, indicative of the fact that something like an atomic uh, explosion takes place that destroys uh, the city, but it could be just a supernatural uh, event from God. So her plagues will come in one day in a very short time. And this phrase, one day, is also found in similar uh, type passages. Uh, for example, in Daniel 5, 1, uh, one through five, the phrase occurs a couple of times, and so this just indicates something that will take place very rapidly and very unexpectedly. She will be destroyed by fire. This did not happen at any of the events that are thought of as fulfilling the Isaiah 13, 14, uh, Jeremiah 50, 51 passages. Uh, she's destroyed by fire, as Isaiah 34, 8 states, and this has never happened before. So this will be the fulfillment of those prophecies. And then there is a lament that is going to take place uh, because of her death. And this is begins to be described in verse 9. And three types, three groups of people are brought into focus. The first are the kings of the earth. The second are going to be the merchants. And the third are the seafarers, the those who are the uh, merchant marines, you might say, that are mentioned uh, briefly uh, later on in the... Uh, in the passage. But one of the first things we have to decide is who are these kings of the earth? The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. Now, are these kings of the earth the same kings of the earth that are the ten kings that are allied with the Antichrist? Well, according to chapter 17, 16, and 17, remember, it's those ten kings that are going to destroy the city. So these kings would not be the same as those ten kings. These kings would be those who are 
hostile to uh, the Antichrist and his uh, and his alliance. So these this represents another group of political leaders and national leaders who had also worked and were uh, completely allied with Babylon. They were in, in bed with the same philosophy, pardon the pun, committed fornication, lived luxuriously with her, and they will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. So this is not the Antichrist allies because they participate in her destruction. This is another group, the enemies of the Antichrist, who lament for her uh, because she is destroyed. And so when they see the smoke of her burning, they weep and lament. Now, time-wise, this will take place at the beginning of the tribulation, I mean the beginning of the campaign of Armageddon. This is one of the first events that takes place in that last period as the Antichrist armies are collecting and the armies of the nations are coming together at the Valley of Armageddon. It is during that time uh, that Babylon is going to be uh, going to be destroyed. And these kings then stand at a distance for fear of her torment. They don't want to be uh, caught up in it. Alas, alas, they say, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. They are just stunned. They are shocked. They are in grief and mourning, and everything they have worked hard to build, All everything they've looked at for stability is destroyed and wiped out. In verse 11, we see the reaction of the merchants. Uh, the merchants uh, of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. I mean, the markets are wiped out at this point. Uh, that's what I meant earlier. I made the comment, Dow Jones hits zero. Nothing's left. There's no buying or selling or trading because this event wipes out all, uh, all commerce. And verse 12 goes on, 12, 13, 14, uh, all go on to describe the various categories of, uh, of merchandise. Verse 12 talks about uh, merchandise of, uh, of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, all kinds of uh, citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of the most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and then spices, cinnamon, and incense, uh, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, your, your basic staples, wine, oil, flour, wheat, uh, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots. And then the last item, notice in, in, uh, that, that are part of the commerce, is the bodies and souls of men. Human trafficking, buying and selling of, of men. And then verse 14 states, the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. What did their soul long for? No, no sorrow, no pain. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. They wanted peace. They wanted security. They wanted to build a stable economic system where there would be no fear of market collapses, no fear of poverty, no fear of war. All of that is collapsed because man cannot achieve real peace apart from God. He goes on to state, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. This is a, a, a extremely strong statement in the Greek that emphasizes the impossibility of ever recovering those things again. 
And then verse 15 goes on to explain more about the destruction of the economic system. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, uh, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. This indicates her wealth, her luxury. She has everything that is uh known to man to provide for comfort. In one hour, verse 17, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing. And then it impacts trade on the sea. We've already seen that the salt seas have been completely wiped out by the uh, in the bold judgments. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? So everyone stands, that's the picture, everyone around the world stands in just shock, just stunned at the destruction of this economic system, and that's further described in verses 19 as, as deep mourning. This is what ha- would happen in the Middle East, how they would typically mourn when someone died. Uh, they threw dust on their heads, cried out, weeping and wailing, and crying, alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. And then the cry goes forth, the, the sh- there's a sh- shift in focus beginning in verse 20 to heaven. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. And this is a direct allusion Back to what happens in the fifth seal. And remember in the fifth seal back in Revelation chapter 6, the focus was on those who were martyrs. Uh, when the fifth seal was opened, John said, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both uh, the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. That is That vengeance they prayed for, that justice they prayed for, is what is brought to a conclusion here in this destruction of Babylon. And this is what brings uh, an end to the kingdom of man. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll wrap up this chapter in terms of the summary in verses 21 through 24 and the then the shift to heaven that occurs in chapter 19, all as a prelude to the great uh, climax in the book, which is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in 1911. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that you are in control. And even when we live in uh, circumstances and times when it appears that things are out of control and it appears that there is uh, chaos and destruction around us and that the hopes and dreams that we might have may not come to fruition, we know that you are in control and that you will eventually bring judgment upon evil and that this cosmic system in which we live, in which we struggle against so much, will one day be judged and destroyed, and then we will rejoice along with the angels in heaven 
and all the saints throughout all the ages because your kingdom will be established upon the earth. But until then, our mission is to represent you both in terms of an overt witness as well as the evidence, the unspoken evidence of our own lives. And we pray that as we continue to study these things that the realities of history as you control it will be made even more clear to us, and this would encourage us to live more faithfully for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.